Our text this morning is the first 19 verses of chapter 9. It is a familiar story. And so when I say that, I will ask you to pay extra attention to the text and not to merely fill in the gaps of God's Word with what you recall about the story. For this is indeed the very Word of God. It is inerrant. It is authoritative. And it is sufficient. Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus called, <clears throat> named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named he, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must, he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's ask His blessing upon it. To our hearts. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we ask this morning that You would show us truth from Your Word. That we would learn from it. That we would take it into our hearts. And that we would be changed by it. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you noticed that we are becoming here in America a nation of cynics? You ask someone when the housing market is going to get better and they shake their heads and say, well, I don't know, maybe never. You ask them when the economy will improve and maybe it's met with grumbling. Maybe you have a conversation with your neighbors about the culture, about society, and that's met with more grumbling. We don't really expect the culture to get much better. We just expect to live through it and hope it's not too much worse for our children. Even those of us who hold sports teams near and dear to our hearts become cynical after a time. We assume that we're never going to meet with success, even something as simple and mundane as that. Now that's one thing. But this kind of cynicism, I think and I fear, has crept its way into the church. We expect the church not to really have an impact anymore in our country or our society. We expect our individual churches not to see large groups of people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ through our evangelism. We become the Christian version of our society simply hoping to get through not really expecting God to move and work much in our day. Revivals were for another time. And we think back wistfully to other ages. Acts chapter 9 is a story for today's cynics. Acts chapter 9 is a story that shows us the unstoppable power of God. How whatever God wants to do, He will do. And how God will bring about His purposes and His ways no matter what we think stands in the way. Even the most vicious persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus. So what I would like us to see this morning is a very unlikely scenario. First, we will see an unlikely prospect for the grace of God. If you were to look out over the entire expanse of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the last person that you would choose to receive the grace of God would be Saul of Tarsus. Praise be to God that God does not listen to us. For almost every single one of us can trace our spiritual descent from Saul. Secondly, I'd like us to see how Saul is taken by God, how he is arrested. He is stopped by God. And then finally, we will see that God leaves him changed forever. That Saul becomes Paul. And he is a changed man forever. Well, let's look first at this unlikely prospect for the grace of God. Who should God shower His grace upon? Well, the first thing that we see is that Saul is a man who is filled with hate. Hate is a part of his daily routine. It's, as we'll see in a moment, the air he breathes in and out. 
Now, who is this Saul of Tarsus? He is a very important man in the history of the church, in the history of the world. For we will see in his travels to come that he takes the gospel to Europe. And he is responsible, not single-handedly, but majorly, for the mission work of Europe. Which will then drive all of history from that point. This story, this man is so important that it is repeated in full three times in the book of Acts. This story occurs here in Acts chapter 9. And Paul tells it again in Acts chapter 22 and in chapter 26. And we learn a little bit of different details in each story. Now, Saul was a very unique man. He was, as many of us know, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the most Jewish, perhaps, of all the Jews. But he was also a Roman from a town in which Rome was very evident. Tarsus was the capital of a province called Cilicia. It's where the Roman governor was. And so it was easier to get Roman citizenship there by doing works for the Roman government. That's very likely how Paul's father or grandfather received Roman citizenship. He was also an educated man, knowledgeable in Hebrew, in Aramaic, and in Greek, and very likely in Latin as well. He was, in one sense, the most perfectly prepared man for God to use. He was educated, brought up, schooled in all of the things for God to use. There's only one problem. Saul was a sworn enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even though he thought he was working for God, he was a sworn enemy of God. He was filled with hate. And we see this in his attitude. Look at how Luke reminds us about who Paul was. Now, you need to remember, first of all, you'll have to forgive me this morning if I use Saul and Paul interchangeably. It's, it's hard to keep them apart, if you will. But I want you to remember that Luke was a close friend and associate of Paul's. He traveled on missionary journeys with him for years. He knew Paul perhaps better than anyone else. And so when he tells us about the attitude that Paul has, he gets it straight from the horse's mouth. Straight from the Pharisee's mouth, as it were. And so he tells us in chapter 9, verse 1, that Saul is still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. Now this word here for breathing is an interesting word. It is actually inhaling. So, it's not that Saul here is breathing out threats, namely that he is giving threats to others. He is breathing them in. They are a part of his very being. He is nourished by threats and murder. He goes over and over in his mind. It's all he can think about. It's, it's central to his being. It is the core of who he is to want to kill Christians. That's who Saul is. And he takes the initiative in this. He's not just one of these people who stand on the side and grumble and complain about what's going on. No. He's ready to take action. 
His attitude is one that I can't sit still while this is going on. And so he takes the initiative. He goes to the high priest. He says, I need letters so I can go take care of these Christians. And I want to get them all. Not just the men. I want to get the women too. You remember we saw this before. There is no mercy at all in Saul. He is all about hate, threat, and death. That attitude expresses itself in his actions. Because as we recall, he had already led in the execution of Stephen. You see, I think sometimes we think that that passage that describes how the cloaks were laid at Saul's feet, that we think that Saul was some kind of coat check boy. That he was a young man. But really, they laid the cloaks at the feet of the one who was in charge of the stoning. It's very likely that Saul had led the charge against Stephen, been defeated in the debate, and then had egged everyone on to execution. It's why he was consenting to Stephen's death. And so now, still, Luke tells us, he has not given up that hatred. Still, he's going around trying to find Christians to kill. He's even looking for the smallest group of them hiding. Now, have you ever wondered why Saul is going to Damascus? Damascus is a town about 150 miles. It's a city about 150 miles from Jerusalem. It took six days to get there by caravan. Now, there are Jews who have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, we know. We know from the previous two chapters, there are Christians in Judea and in Samaria. But no, Saul is not satisfied that they are persecuted. He wants to run down any Christian that he can find, even the small group that has fled six days away in Damascus. They think they're safe because Damascus is not a part of Israel. It's a part of another kingdom. They think that they are safe from the Sanhedrin, that no one surely will travel this far just to come and find them as they hide in their little groups of twos and threes and fours. But Saul will come after them. That is how much hate he has. He cannot bear anyone to claim that Jesus is the Messiah. And so, it is not enough for him to persecute Jerusalem. He wants to get letters to go into Damascus. Now, why is Saul filled with such hate? I think the answer is that Saul is offended by the gospel. You see, he wants to go all the way into Damascus because he is offended by what the gospel says. You see, for Deuteronomy 21 says that the man who is hanged on a tree is cursed. And Saul would look at his Bible and he would say, Jesus is cursed. He is no man of God. He is no son of God. He is a wicked man who was justly slain. He might even repeat that to himself in the middle of the night. Perhaps when he woke up, shivering, recalling what he had done to Stephen. He would remind himself, he would pour over Deuteronomy 21. And he would say that this has to be stopped. And so he gathers a large group with him. Large enough to carry back prisoners. And he goes up to get extradition for every Christian who is there. He has to jump through a lot of hoops. He has to get the permission of the high priest. 
He has to get the permission of the Roman government in Jerusalem, and he has to get permission of the Roman government in Damascus. This is no easy task. He is a very active man. Some of you know how difficult extradition is to get. Perhaps you recall the story in recent months of Roman Polanski. Lawyers from every country around Switzerland and the United States trying to figure out a way to get someone extradited. Paul is willing to go the next mile. And so he goes and he travels to Damascus, but do you know where he has to go through to get to Damascus? A little region called Samaria. Do we know what's going on in Samaria now? Well, we do if we've been looking at Acts chapter 8. Samaria is in the midst of revival. Now imagine this. Saul, who hates Jesus and hates Christians and is tracking them down, has got to go through revival land. You can almost imagine him in the caravan looking and saying, well, I don't have time now, but when I get back, I'm going to get every one of these ones too. You can imagine him getting angrier and angrier, filling more and more with hate as he sees people praising Jesus Christ, calling Him the Son of God. Saul is a very unlikely candidate for the grace of God. But that's how God will have it. You see, the unlikelier the candidate, the more glory God gets. When we look at someone and say, we don't understand how they could have come to believe except for a miracle, except for the gracious act of God, then we know that it's God who's at work. Not us. Not others around us. And so, as Saul goes full speed, ready to destroy the church, breathing out threats and murders, breathing in threats and murders, he is stopped cold by God. Look with me, if you would, here at verse 3. He is on his way, approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he falls to the ground and hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul. Now, I ask you a simple question. Who's initiating this contact? Is it Saul? Is Saul riding through saying, I only wish that God would speak to me? Is Saul perhaps following in the footsteps of the Ethiopian eunuch, reading an Old Testament text and saying, I wonder what this says about Jesus? No. These are the furthest things from Saul's mind. You see, it's completely obvious here in Acts chapter 9, perhaps the greatest conversion story in all of the New Testament, the greatest missionary in all of the church's history, and God is the one who takes the initiative. Saul wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ wants Saul. This is how God works. Saul is completely unprepared. This flash of light comes, knocks him down. It is a flash of light that fills everything. It is a complete surprise to him. You might imagine, well, it's the start now of college football season. So you'll permit me an illustration. It's a surprise like when you're watching and that small receiver goes over the middle to catch the pass and doesn't see the middle linebacker and is knocked flat. Not just because the hit is hard, but because they have no idea it's coming. 
They can't prepare themselves at all. That's what happens to Saul. He's completely unprepared. God reaches out and grabs Saul with a flash of light. Even while murder is still on his mind, perhaps that's what Paul was thinking about when he said, even while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. Now, this is not just something that is happening externally. It is a verifiable event. You know, some will make up excuses and say, well, this didn't really happen. Paul probably had a hallucination. Maybe it was a fit of epilepsy. But there's only one problem with that. There are others who are around him that see the light. They don't see Jesus, but they see the flash of light. They're knocked over. They hear the sound. They don't understand the words, but they hear the audible sound. This is not a figment of Saul's imagination. It's a verifiable event. But don't get caught up with the external, because you see what's really happening here is something internal. Saul is knocked to the ground, yes. He is blinded, yes. But what is really happening is God is getting in to his heart. God is coming upon Saul. He is changing who he is. And so the Lord not only initiates this contact, but he also convicts Saul. Look at the language that is used here. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, the double use of Saul's name serves two purposes here. The first is to be emphatic. We've seen that before in the Bible. But there's something else here. You may notice, and if you have an opportunity later today to go through the Gospels, when someone is addressed by their name twice, there is very often an attitude, there is very often a hint of judgment involved. So, for example, when our Lord is disappointed in Martha with being more concerned about cleaning than sitting at His feet, He says, Martha, Martha. You see, this duplication of the name not only is to get Saul's attention, but it's to get his attention to let him know that God is not pleased with what he is doing. This becomes very obvious by the rest of the question. The question is not, Saul, Saul, don't you want to live your best life now? Saul, Saul, don't you realize how good your life and your marriage could be? No. It's Saul, why are you persecuting me? This would cut Saul to the heart. He would know that he has found out that the very recesses of his heart are open to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, he knows that Jesus is real, is alive, and identifies with his church. Because he doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? That's what you would say. Might you not? That's what I would say. We even do that today. We say, we speak of persecution of Chinese Christians, of Indian Christians, of Sudanese Christians, when in reality, who is being persecuted? It's Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is identified with His people. And so, the Lord Jesus cuts right to the chase with Saul. He doesn't Ask him about the times he's lied. 
He doesn't ask him about things that he's stolen. He doesn't ask him about mean things that he said. No. He goes right to the heart. He says, Saul, what is your relationship with me? You see, rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ is the sin. That is the sin that will separate us from God forever. But that we repent of it and we profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else is just window dressing. Everything else is just an application of that sin. All of the lies, all of the threats, all of the stealing, all of the insensitivity, it is all just the fruit of the sin of disliking, of hating, of rejecting Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you think your life could use a scrub brush, you wish your relationships were better, you wish people trusted you more, you wish you wouldn't get as angry, you must begin with Jesus. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you must begin there. You must profess Him as God and King. And if you do know Jesus Christ, you must still begin with Jesus. You must come to Him You must acknowledge His Lordship over your life and ask Him to wash your life clean. You see, the Lord Jesus convicts Saul. He tells him what his real sin is, and this is an answer to prayer. Do you remember who was the last man to see the Lord Jesus? It was Stephen. Do you remember what was the last thing that Stephen said? Lord, do not hold this sin to them. Stephen's prayer was a prayer for Saul, even though Stephen may not have known it. This should be the most encouraging thing that you hear this week. That God hears prayers. That God answers magnificently prayers, even prayers we don't think He will answer. Even prayers we don't think have a chance of being answered. Perhaps even prayers we are afraid to pray because we think they are beyond God. Do you dare to pray for that relative who never wants to speak about Jesus with you? Do you dare to pray for that child in the neighborhood who picks on you, who makes fun of you, who doesn't like you? Do you dare to pray for the enemies of the church and this nation? You see, God answers those kind of Stephen prayers. And we ought not ever, ever to be afraid to pray them. So, our Lord Jesus, He comes upon Saul this most unlikely of persons. And he literally stops him in his tracks. He arrests him. But he does something else. He changes him forever. We see this first in Saul's conversion. It is a miraculous conversion. It's a conversion that we will learn in later chapters will actually change his name from Saul to Paul. And I want to to point something out to you that I think the modern church could learn from. Do you notice what is not described in Acts chapter 9? The actual moment 
the actual thought, the actual time of Saul's conversion. Do you see that? Luke's not really interested in exactly when Saul became a Christian. Was it when the light hit him? Was it when the question was asked of him? Was it when Ananias came? Was it when the scales fell from his eyes? Was it when he was baptized? We don't know. We do know that Saul becomes Paul. You see, I think sometimes we get so caught up in the moment, in writing down the the day, the hour, and the minute, that we forget that what the Lord Jesus is really concerned about, what Luke is really concerned about, is not the minute, but the heart. That the heart is changed. That the life is changed. And so if this morning you are relying for your eternal destiny on a time scribbled in the back of the Bible, and you're not obedient to the words in the Bible, then you need to take a step back. Because you see, Luke wants us to be focused not about what we say, not about what we think, not about what others think of us, but about who we are and how our relationship is with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, we see here fruit of this conversion. Saul becomes dedicated to Christ. It's not in this version, but in the second version, Acts chapter 22, verse 10. One of the first things that Saul says to Jesus is, What should I do now, Lord? What would you have me to do? You see, that's the cry of the Christian. It's not, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? It's, what would you have me to do, Lord? You're the master, I'm the servant. You're the king, I'm the subject. What would you have me to do? And Jesus tells Saul to go into the city, to give up everything he has and to follow him. Now make no mistake, this is just as radical as Peter and John leaving their nets. Even more so. Some think that Saul made this story up in order to get ahead. Which is foolishness, because he had everything going for him. He was an up-and-coming Pharisee. He was on the Sanhedrin. He was a Roman citizen. He had the ear of the governing authorities. And he gives all of this up to be persecuted along with the Christians? Only obedience to the command of Jesus explains that. Are you ready to give up all? Would you give up your job if Jesus asked you to? Would you give up your children to missions if Jesus asked you to? What would you give up for Jesus? If the answer is anything less than all, then you need to look at your heart and ask the Lord to continue to work to mold you into the image of Jesus Christ. You see, then Saul gets up and he is straightaway obedient to Christ. He goes into the city. He doesn't care that he has to be led by the hand. He's not ashamed of the gospel, as he will write later. He is converted. And the result of this conversion shows itself in the communion that he has. First, a communion with Christ. And then a communion with Christ's church. Now, does it strike you as odd that 
As Saul is converted, the very first thing that he does is go and sit in a room for three days and not eat and drink. It seems a little odd to me. Why is Saul doing this? Or better yet, the question might be, why is the Lord Jesus Christ arranging his circumstances so that that's what Jesus wants him to do? Doesn't Jesus have work for him? There's not a day to lose, is there? Why does he sit around in a room for three days? Well, I think it's because the first thing that every Christian needs to get solid in their life is their relationship with Jesus. It's not their mission. It's not their ministry. The very first thing we need to be solid with is our relationship with Jesus. And so, Saul has been blinded. Now, have you ever looked into the sun for too long? Some of the kids have, haven't they? Even though mom and dad says, don't do this, you look up into the sun a little too long, and you look away, and what happens? All you see is what? The sun, right? You see sunspots in front of your eyes. It's all you can see, and the longer you look, the longer that's all you can see. I think all Saul could see were sunspots. S-O-N spots. All he could see for three days was the thing that had blinded him. The vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was wrapped up in this. Jesus sequestered him so that he might have relationship with him. And that manifests itself in prayer. When the Lord Jesus comes to Ananias and tells him to go to see Saul, he tells him the proof that Saul has become Paul. He says, behold, he's praying. That seals the deal for Ananias. You see, prayer comes natural to the Christian. It's like breathing. How many of you think about breathing? How many of you at the end of the day say, glad I can make it through the day breathing. I hope I can breathe through the night. Right? No, you just do it. It just happens naturally. That's what prayer is like for the Christian. You don't think about how tiring it is to pray. It's just something you do. It doesn't have to be something even you do formally. It's something that you do while you're in the car. You do while you're washing your hands. You do while you're thinking about something. You do while you look out and see something. It's natural to the Christian. And that shows that the conversion of Saul is real. Saul has communion with Jesus because he sees Him and because he prays. Finally, we see that Saul joins himself to the church. Now, can you imagine Ananias? Now, this is not the other Ananias. This is the good Ananias. Ananias, who had faithfully served the Lord in Damascus for who knows how many years, and he says, well, let me ask you, he says, you know, could you do me a favor? What, Lord? Please go and visit Osama bin Laden and the boys at Al-Qaeda. Lord, are you trying to make me present with you quicker than otherwise? You trying to get my head cut off? Poor Ananias. He offers up a bit of a defense and you can't blame him. He says, Lord, do you know this is the guy who's coming who's trying to kill us all? And Jesus says, I've taken care of that. Go obey. 
And Ananias does. And he does something, it's a little thing in the Bible, so little we might slip over it as we hear about all the wondrous things that happened to Saul. He comes in, he opens the door, he looks at Saul, and what's the very first word he says? Brother. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what the church would be like if the very first thing we said to each other was brother? When someone walked in, we didn't look at how they dressed. We didn't look at what Bible they were carrying. And when we participate with others, if we started with the relationship that we have with Jesus. You see, this is what happens. Saul is baptized. He's immediately brought into the community of faith. And he's received into the church. Look at verse 19. He spends days with the disciples at Damascus. He's a completely changed man. He's in communion with Christ. He is in embodiment with the church. Do you doubt the work of God? This story should change that forever. God takes the most unlikely man, the most wicked of sinners. He stops him in his tracks. He stops his persecution in his tracks. And he brings him into full communion with Jesus Christ and with his people. This is the hope of the church. Is it your hope today? If it is, as we go from this place, pray that God would make more Saul's Paul's in your life and mine. Let's pray.